Now I'm, I'm just going to jump right to the edge. Yes, take us to the edge. The real point of this mission, the interstellar probe. We are looking to get into interstellar space. That's right. Welcome to What The If. Philip Chain here, documentary filmmaker, solo on the hosting side. Our uh, co-pilot, co-captain, uh, Matthew Stanley, Professor Matthew Stanley, is currently on a mission uh, to the future. And so, uh, you know, whatever he's gathering, he's gone, he's following some if. When he comes back, he'll tell us what the if. What the if. How things developed in the future. Our... Guest today is going to be doing double duty as the expert, and he is beloved, by the way. A lot of compliments from audience members who have heard him before. It's Kirby Runyon, NASA man from NASA. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yes, I do. When I ask people, what would have been your favorite shows? Oh, that one where you went to Pluto. That guy was great. (laughs) And so you you come to us from the... uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. That's correct. APL, the people who brought you Pluto. (laughs) (laughs) The the meaning, the New Horizons mission. The New Horizons mission to the planet Pluto. That's right. And your title on that mission was what? I'm a science team member on the geology uh, and geophysics imaging team. So, you know, I'm kind of a a worker bee, just uh, helping to analyze the data. Yes. Occasionally grabbing coffee. Oh, okay. Hey, that's, you know, science. I mean, that's, that's rocket fuel, too. Just that, like... <laughs> exactly. You had mentioned just real briefly um, before the show, you'd mentioned that the work on New Horizons currently was at an ebb. Not a it's flow. at an ebb. So what makes, yeah. it, what makes it come back? What makes it come back is when... People writing papers have more to write. We're currently in kind of a stage where we've been sub- we've submitted papers to a journal um, for the results from the flyby from uh, the Kuiper Belt Object 2014 MU69, aka Ultima Thule. And so those papers have largely been written. They're just kind of going through the peer review process uh, leading up to publication. So you know, uh, we're we're also working on a, a, a Pluto chapter, or not a Pluto chapter, a Pluto book. People are working on chapters for the Pluto book, and uh, things are, you know, there's some noses to the grindstone there, but there aren't any major uh, events going on with that right now. We've gotten all the images back from the spacecraft. We are still downlinking other data, non-images, uh, and that'll continue to take about a little more than another year. But um, in terms of those of us who do geology and composition of the surface, we have all the data we're ever going to get for Ultima Thule. So... Um, Things will pick back up again as we as we start writing a proposal for NASA senior review to possibly fly by another Kuiper Belt object. So we can't have Ultima Thule 2.0, possibly. We can find it. So we're also looking for one of those. I will mention, however, one of the flows in the ebb and flow cycle uh, will be coming up at the very end of August, beginning of September, where we're going to de-spin the spacecraft. It's currently slowly spinning for stability. We're going to de-spin, and we're going to point the LORI telescope camera at a number of Kuiper Belt objects that are a long ways away. They're still going to be only a pixel. But one of those 
is one of my favorite little planets, about half the size of Pluto, named Quayoar. And uh, Quayoar is about half the size of uh, Pluto, but uh, we're actually going to image it from quite a ways away, but still from within the Kuiper Belt by New Horizons in just a few weeks. So let's get to it. So the, this week, you brought us a bold new mission to go literally where no man or woman or child <laughs> has or of any gender, anywhere on the gender spectrum, <laughs> anyone has ever gone before. Correct. So, what the if we could go for a ride Yes. and leave the solar system? Leave the solar system. Well, only four spacecraft have done that before, and only two of them are functioning. And not even New Horizons will do that. Oh, wow. So, so first of all, the question is, I think those who really know what is defined maybe as the edge of the solar system know in some detail. Those who don't know think they know. Probably ah. they imagine, like I would have imagined before I kind of got to know a little bit more about this topic, probably just think, well, the orbit of Pluto, mm-hmm. whether or not, you know, it, wherever that is, yeah. oh, you go past Pluto and you're out. But that's not right. No, that's not right by a long shot. And it's a good thing it's not right because the truth is way more interesting than that. Ooh. Yeah. Pluto, Pluto's in the Kuiper Belt, of course. It's the largest known planet in the Kuiper Belt. And there's over 130 Pluto-sized planets in the Kuiper Belt, but Pluto's the biggest. And it extends out for quite a bit beyond Pluto's orbit. And uh, even beyond that, we, we think there's this scattered disk of even more objects uh, beyond there. But really, the way we kind of define the solar system is based on the location of the edge of what's called the sun's heliosphere, Heliosphere is just the sun's version of what almost every star in the universe has, which is has an even cooler name called an astrosphere. <laughs> and astrospheres, which I just I love that name, is the bubble that a star blows in the gas uh, in the galaxy around it. All these stars, including the sun, have the, their solar or stellar wind spewing off their surfaces, traveling into space at many tens or hundreds of kilometers per second. And this in almost literally inflates uh, a region around them in the other dilute gases and the diffuse gases in the galaxy. Uh, As we look at the astro, some astrospheres are really easy to see because the star is embedded in a nebula. So uh, there's some stars in the Orion Nebula that have these beautiful kind of like these shock waves, almost looks like an arrow from a bow and arrow. And a nebula, yeah, nebula meaning basically being like a, in, as people are used to seeing in photographs, looks like a cloud. It's those very colorful clouds you might see in a Hubble yeah, telescope. Yeah, exactly. And that's where stars are being born. Yep. Clouds of gas and dust where stars form. Yeah. And so, so you get look like the bow part of a bow and arrow that looks like it's forming around the star. And that's just where the, the that star's winds are colliding at supersonic speed with the gas in the nebula. Now, if you're like our sun, it's kind of a remote part of the galaxy. There's not really much of a nebula around. There's still a little bit of gas. Our astrosphere is much less pronounced. But we don't know. Is it bow-shaped? Is it spherical-shaped? Or is it like tadpole-shaped? 
the star Mira has this really long tail huh. uh, that's resulting from the uh, galactic gas around it blowing past and stretching its astrosphere out into a very, very long, almost comet tail, but right. much, much larger. Okay, so I got some very, very, very basic questions about that, but I, w- I want to ask after I'm there. Yes. So how in the world are we We're going to ride aboard this craft? Yes. Is this is this a mission that is actually going to happen? Where is what what is it called, and how much of it is actually planned? So yeah, so this mission is a mission concept. It's not a real bona fide mission yet, but it's a it's a mission concept study that my employer, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab (APL), is uh, is uh, is doing, and it would notionally launch around twenty thirty. And it would send a spacecraft out of the solar system super fast using no new technology. We can do this now with today's technology. And that's the key point, is every time you you think about doing this, you want to invent some new technology, either like really big solar sails or nuclear thermal propulsion or really big ion engines or something like that. Turns out those won't do it. Those, Those actually slow you down compared to what we want to do. And you can do this now. You don't have to kick the ball down the road a few more decades or years. But to be to be clear, actually, what we're saying is that mission is it's not going to have people on it. That's the if. Yes, correct. This is a robotic mission. But if it had people on it, what would they see? Um, yeah. And or what if we could do it? So the idea is that this is where rocket science gets really easy. No one will have under have any problems understanding this rocket science. Just take the biggest rocket you can possibly think of. And right now, one of those that's under development is called the SLS, the Space Launch System that NASA is developing. So you take an SLS rocket, and you take one of the lightest spacecraft you can think of, and that'd be about a half a ton spacecraft, about the same size as New Horizons. So you take a small, light spacecraft, and you stick it on the biggest rocket you have. What about a sports car? A sports car? (laughs) A red one, let's say. I think that's been done. (laughs) But that's not big enough to carry the instruments. That's not big enough. That's not big enough. And has no batteries or anything. Nah. Right. So so that combination gets you going really fast. Right. Really fast. But even that big rocket, small spacecraft combination isn't good enough. We're a glutton for speed. We want to get out of the solar system into interstellar space as fast as we can. So we're going to fly by Jupiter and use that Jupiter gravity uh, angular momentum slingshot to sling us out of the solar system. Just like Voyager 1 and 2 did, just like New Horizons did. But even that's not fast enough for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a solid rocket booster, we're going to stick it on the bottom of the spacecraft, and when we're flying by Jupiter at closest approach, then we're going to light that sucker. And that combination of being deep inside Jupiter's gravity well and lighting that solid rocket booster is what's going to send us out of the solar system super fast. It's just a new combination of of tricks out of our bag of tricks. Yeah, that would be... It's almost like a fourth stage or of a rocket or something. It yeah, just takes yeah. a long time to... It doesn't get lit for some years into the mission. It doesn't get lit for a few months, at least. It would probably be about roughly a year on the order of a year to get to Jupiter, probably a little bit less. It took New Horizons 13 months to get to Jupiter, but it didn't have a kick stage on it by the time it got to Jupiter. It just did a, what's called a passive Jupiter gravity assist, which still sped us up and cut three years off the mission to okay, Pluto. Okay, so we're on this badass rocket. Yeah. And so we took off... On an SLS, do you know what, suppose we had been fortunate enough, I suppose fortunate, to ride on the rocket that launched 
New Horizons, for instance, which up till yeah. now is the was is is the fastest, right? Almost, not quite, but it's pretty fast. Do you know how many G's we would have experienced? Like the the one thing about robotic missions is they don't have to account for people, so they can go as fast as they want, right? I don't know off the top of my head. I I would guess it'd be somewhere between six and ten G's off the top of my head. There's a really cool YouTube video comparing the launch of two Atlas V rockets, one of which launched New Horizons, and the other one in this video happened to launch a national security payload, a spy satellite in orbit around the Earth. It doesn't have to go super fast, it just has to get up there. And the video side-by-side, one is kind of just lumbering off the pad, the other one just shoots off the top of the screen, (laughs) and you can guess which one thought it was launching empty with uh, the tiny New Horizons spacecraft on board. So, so that acceleration that would have that would have had our hypotheticals pinned in their seats. Right. So we're on board. You and I are riding this rocket. Right. Uh, we yeah. So we had some major G's. We dealt with it. That may be the one technology that uh, we have yet to invent, but doesn't matter. We're going. We're going around, and let's say we get to the Jupiter part, and this is kind of fascinating because so we've got a solid rocket booster. Mm-hmm. strapped to our rocket has been waiting to go mm-hmm. and it fires up we then go do we get close to jupiter is that the idea that the closer you get the f- more push you get yeah literally the closer you can get to jupiter the faster you can go the problem is jupiter has a very thin ring system and when you're going fast those little ring particles can kill you so the idea is to miss the rings which means either going in between the rings and the cloud tops, dangerous, or a bit safer is to is to give up some of your advantage and be far enough away that you don't run into the rings. But you still want to get as close as possible. Han Solo would <laughs> take Han the... Solo would take it in between the rings and the and the cloud tops. <laughs> yes, he would. So Chewie will punch it. <laughs> Obviously, that that would be amazing science in and of itself. It sounds like they wouldn't. You wouldn't choose that because it's a little riskier. So you can do another way. But that would be amazing, right? To fly through the ring, through up the cloud tops of Jupiter. That'd be amazing. And then just to explain for people, so there's just not getting too deep, but gravitational slingshot. Basically, the idea is that everybody understands that as you approach a giant body, certainly one like Jupiter, you are pulled towards it by its gravity. Mm-hmm. And is the idea that if you don't smash into the planet. If you're able to kind of let it pull you kind of at an angle and you get real close to those cloud tops, you will have picked up so much speed now. You still have enough speed to leave the planet. But yeah, think about like a mm-hmm. think about like a lasso where it's like the la- Jupiter's gravity is the lasso that latches onto you, but then Jupiter's also traveling in its orbit around the sun. And so now that Jupiter's grabbed onto you, you take some of Jupiter's momentum from going around its orbit in the sun, and you've actually slowed Jupiter down a teeny tiny bit, And you've but you've picked up a lot of energy that just, since you're a tiny little half-ton spacecraft, that just flings you out really fast. It, so yeah, imagine like a lasso, you're, you're swinging over your head, and that's Jupiter's gravity and its momentum, and it just takes that spacecraft and flings it out of the solar system. And then, and then imagine doing that with a model rocket. So you're, you're on a lasso. <laughs> that combination, that's, that's a very potent combination. For <laughs> so at what point do we fire, at what point in this journey, approaching Jupiter, getting close to Jupiter, leaving Jupiter, at what point do we fire the solid rocket booster? You fire the rock, solid rocket booster as close to Jupiter as you can. So this approach is called para-Jove, closest approach to Jupiter, Jove. And so at para-Jove, you... you um, 
it, it takes a, a minute or so to fire the solid rocket booster. So you want your closest approach to be timed right kind of in the middle of that rocket firing. And then you're done with that solid rocket booster stage. So you jettison it. And then you're just, it's just you, your little spacecraft with little hydrazine thrusters on it, leaving the solar system. And the booster would, I guess, burn up in Jupiter's atmosphere. Or no, maybe- no, it's on the same exit trajectory as the spacecraft, just a l- tiny bit slower. In fact, the upper stage that launched uh, New Horizons out of Earth orbit also did a passive, unfired, unpowered flyby of Jupiter, and also did a very distant flyby of Pluto. Um, but it's just an inert upper rocket stage corpse at this point. I didn't realize that. So it's so we literally also have space junk leaving the solar system. So the, the New Horizons satellite is being trailed by the pieces of the rocket that it that took it into space. Exactly. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. And how far behind is it? Like days? Like I don't know off the top of my head. It missed Pluto by tens of thousands of miles. It would like if someone riding on that rocket stage might have seen a bright dot in the distance that would have been Pluto, but they wouldn't have been able to see it the way New Horizon saw saw the planet. Um, so it it didn't. Yeah, it's it's tens of thousands of miles away at this point. I would think I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but it's a good bit further away. You wouldn't see it if you were on the spacecraft. I see. I see. So, yeah, and that's interesting. So you fire it as close. That's how you get the biggest kick, is firing. That's how you get the biggest kick, yep. Okay, away we go. And some more Gs. Some more Gs when you fire the rocket booster, yeah. Although I'm guessing that, I guess it depends on the size. of. Would that solid rocket booster be identical to the ones that were on the space shuttle, or would it be bigger, smaller? Oh, it'd be a lot smaller. So it would probably be something. In fact, it's probably it would probably be this the Star Forty Eight B solid rocket booster that is commercially available for your communication satellite, and and in fact, that same type of solid rocket booster was used on NASA's Parker Solar Probe that is doing super duper close passes of the sun. There's a lot of flight heritage. We've, we have a lot of experience flying this thing in space. Uh, something similar, if not the same thing, was also used on New Horizons, but it was used to help leave Earth, not to get us going really fast by Jupiter. Did the Parker Solar Probe use it to launch off of the Earth, or did it use it mid-journey? It used it shortly after it left Earth, because the hard part with falling into the sun was that first you have to go fast to leave Earth, and then you have to go slow to fall into the sun. Okay, so, so this has been done at least once before where somebody brought a rocket into space that they fired after all the... Uh, it's a little bit different for instance, uh, Apollo, for instance, to, to, to leave the Earth. It was still the whole Saturn... It was all part of the Saturn V right. rocket. Yeah, I mean, this is where the, the solid rocket booster actually fits inside the, the, the nose cone, the payload fairing of the rocket. So it's almost not a part of the rocket. It's the rocket sees it as part of the payload. This has been done a number of times before. This isn't anything terribly new. This is super evil Knievel, evil Knievel-like, though. Strap on <laughs> a big rocket <laughs> and go. Okay, so we're flying out from Jupiter, and then now what's next? And how fast are we going as we leave Jupiter? As we leave Jupiter, we're going anywhere from 8 to 12 astronomical units per year. For comparison, New Horizons is traveling three astronomical units per year, where an astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, 93 million miles, 150 million kilometers. And so it's like New Horizons is traveling three times the Earth-Sun distance every year. We would be going anywhere from 8 to 12 astronomical units per year. 
So right around 45 kilometers per second. The record holder is Voyager 1, moving at 3.6 astronomical units per year. And that was after getting a Jupiter or both a Jupiter and a Saturn gravity assist. So this is so we're beating that. We're beating all that with just a single Jupiter and a rocket firing assist. And so now we're just we're just there's nothing to look at. There we're just flying through, we're crossing the orbits of the planets, but the other planets aren't going to be around until we get to the Kuiper belt, which is a region of planetesimals and small planets like Pluto orbiting the sun beyond Neptune. And that's it stretches from about 30 to 55 astronomical units from the sun. So Jupiter's at five astronomical units. Now we've got to go from five into the 30s and 40s of astronomical units away. But we're traveling fast, so it'll only take a few years to get there. And after, so when we, when we did the slingshot around Jupiter, we were feeling massive acceleration. And at this point, we're just coasting. We're just, we're weightless. So you can do your, you can do your stupid astronaut tricks, like floating your food and like eating, <laughs> drinking globs of water out of the air that are floating there. Fantastic. You can like do somersaults and yeah. So you're doing your stupid astronaut tricks after Jupiter. And the craziest thing is that there's no sensation of speed. Correct. Yeah. You are going this ridiculous speed, but there's no, we don't see like they do in the movies, lots of like stars whizzing by. Sadly, no. It'd look cool if you did though. It would. Yeah. So we arrive uh, what's our what's our first object? We we would choose one, I guess. Right. So we choose one. One of the top targets that's or that's contending for top place is the small planet Quayowar. It's a dwarf planet. It's half the size of Pluto. And what I love people to realize, I like what I love for people to realize is that these dwarf planets like Pluto are the most common type of planet in the entire solar system. There's over 130 of these guys beyond Neptune. So there's a ton of these things to go explore. So just like New Horizons flew past Pluto on its way out of the solar system, we're going to take, hopefully, interstellar probe and fly by, perhaps, Quayowar on our way out of the solar system. Now, Quayowar, in addition to being impossible to pronounce, is also a really weird little planet in its own right. Um, using spectroscopy from Earth, we've seen that its surface is covered in a crystalline water and methane ice, which suggests that in the not-too-distant past, maybe only the last one or two billion years, that there were volcanoes erupting mixtures of water and methane and ammonia onto the surface, and that it has only recently frozen onto the surface, which means that it's a geologically active planet. And as a planetary geologist myself, it sounds like a very interesting place to go study. So would, would you be able to... See, we wouldn't be able to stop and get out no we wouldn't be able to be able to have a landing party first of all we have no red shirts we have no red shirts to sacrifice i i refuse to put on a red shirt <laughs> not your color clashes with your skin tone well you know bad things happen to the guys right. in the red shirt we can't stop because we have nothing first of all we've used up all our rockets we used up all our rocket fuel almost all of it We've got some left for maneuvering, small little adjustments. So we have nothing to really do major. Uh, well, how, how much time would you be able to, we can look out the window, we can see this thing going. How fast do we go by this object? It would take, you know, a solid half hour, I I'm guessing, but order of minutes to a few hours to really feel like you're passing it. Uh, I did the calculation. The, the Quayowar out the window would only be moving by at less than a degree per second. Hmm put your finger out and just slowly move it by. That's how fast it's it'd be moving by. So you've got, you've got plenty of time to take your telephoto zoom lens and snap a bunch of pictures up close on the planet as you go past. How close 
wouldn't you want to get as close as possible? Yes and no. For, for reference, New Horizons flew 10,000 kilometers to Pluto. Quayowar uh, has a small moon called Waywat that's 81 kilometers across. 10,000 kilometers above the surface of Pluto was its closest approach, right? Yes, right? yes. And then our zoom lens was so good that we got still lots of up-close pictures. Quayowar may have a ring around it. We don't know. It, it has a moon, so it could have rings around it, too. So there also may be undiscovered moons. So f- the danger of flying too close is that you smack into something and you end your mission then. If, there's, if we're confident there's, there's no risk, you can get arbitrarily close. The closer you are, though, the faster it's going by out the window, the more blurry your images might be from the smear, but the higher resolution they might be. So it's a trade-off. 3,500 kilometers we think we could do. So three times closer than what New Horizons was to Pluto, we think we could do with Quayowar, 3,500 kilometers from the surface. So we'd have ridiculously high resolution. Well, we'd have, you know, 30 meter per pixel uh, images of the surface. So you'd be able to see football fields would be a few pixels across, for instance. And I know it's covered in football fields. Covered in football fields. We know they love football on quick KOR. And just just to reiterate, you said KOR is the same size as Pluto? It's half the diameter. It's the same size really as, as Pluto's um, satellite moon Charon. Okay. Okay, cool. There's lots of these things out here, but there's not so many that I mean, can we see more than one of these dwarf planets or objects at the same time? No. So when New Horizon, or sorry, when Interstellar Probe flies by Quayowar, it's probably going to be the only dwarf planet we get to visit on that mission because they're just so far apart from each other. There's a, there's a slight chance we could do like a New Horizon style flyby of a small Quaker Belt object like Ultima Thule, like like a little peanut shaped thing or something. You know, if it happens to lie along the flight path, we could maybe do that. But we probably only get one planetary flyby. Now I'm I'm just going to jump right to the edge. Yes, take us to the edge. The real point of this mission, the interstellar probe. We are looking to get into interstellar space. That's right. What does... Here's one of my biggest questions. This is something I've never really fully kind of been able to grasp. Some time ago in the news, we started to hear that the Voyager satellites were getting near the heliosphere, and there was some debate. Has it crossed? Has it not crossed? Has it crossed? And and so it sounds like now they... They're, they're certain it has. Yep, both have. Both Voyagers have. Which means that it is outside the cloud of particles that are spewing out from the sun. Yes, yes. As a, as a person on board this ship. First of all, the particles we're talking about are, they're like... Uh, Hydrogen, helium, electrons, the odd heavier atom like iron maybe from the, yeah. What we're talking about is that you can't see it, but around you there's some density of these electrons flying out. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point at this heliosphere, what happens? Yeah, so at some point, the particles streaming off the sun, the solar wind, slow down to below the speed of sound because they're running into other particles coming off other stars from the galaxy. And so it forms a shock wave right there. It's sort of like uh, the 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 it's sort of like the the wake in front of a boat. The the kind of the 
the the wave in, going out in front of a boat that kind of tells the porpoise that the boat's coming that so the porpoise can start swimming and doing tricks off that what is the density of these particles close to earth it's something around three protons per cubic centimeter i think so it's less than that <laughs> so it's ridiculously sparse out there and yet things are running into each other one thing that helps them run into each other is that if you're ionized that means you want to pick up an electron and so you use the you use the um so you use electro electric attraction to you know if you're a proton to swipe an electron from way over there and make a, pro, a hydrogen atom that's charge exchange if we were imagining grains of sand, which are significantly, enormously bigger. Huge. But just, just as an imagination. So just to understand the perspective, this is as if you're on the beach, for instance, and the wind is blowing across the beach and sand is getting lifted right at the level of the, right at the level of the beach. You can see a cloud, let's say. It's like the wind is really going, right? Okay. There's the, but up, 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 up in the air, you know, these, um, as the, Sand particles get carried up higher and higher, let's say. They become very far apart. Yeah. And then if they were to get to a, some some level in the atmosphere where all of a sudden they're going to be hit by other particles of sand? <laughs> like, what are the—this this is what's so bizarre. Is how, do, how, how does something so tiny—what do what are the odds that it's going to hit something else? Or is it just that there are so many particles out there? I think it's a combination of there's so many particles and they have a huge space over which they can hit something else. Like it can travel tens of thousands of kilometers and then get hit by something after not getting hit for tens of thousands of kilometers. So you have a long time span and a big, you have a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of opportunities for an unlikely event to occur such that it will occur. Actually, I realized, so there's the heliosphere, which is the sphere of particles blowing out from the sun. But the heliopause, right, is the name of the, just for the actual edge. Yeah, I, I believe that's the actual edge. There's other words like the termination shock and the heliopause. I think the heliopause is the outermost. The edge of this sphere of particles is not like a sharp edge. It's a, it's a zone. It's a zone. Kind of like an end zone. And as the sun's activity ebbs and flows, it breathes in and out. And so as the voyagers were crossing this, they actually crossed in and out of interstellar space several times as the heliosphere breathed in and out in response to the sun's varying activity levels. So it's definitely a fuzzy boundary. It's, this, this is like really more like currents, like two current, like the, the, the particles coming out of the sun are kind of like a river, a stream, we say even streaming out. Mm -hmm. When they hit the edge of interstellar space, it's like there's a massive current like the Gulf Stream or something. There's some other current out there that sort of redirects them into some direction. Yes, yeah. And they're, they're impacting the, the streams. Where the streams from other stars are impacting into the sun's heliosphere at this point. And as the, as the interstellar probe spacecraft pierces through that fuzzy boundary, it can then look back at the heliosphere whence it traversed and look for the first time at the overall shape of the bubble in space that we all live in. Whoa. So do we actually see... So we're doing this now. We're on board. We're, we're through the heliopause. We're out into interstellar space. And now your eyes are no longer sensitive to just photons. They're also sensitive to atoms. Ooh. What does that mean? It, it, it means that you can see the atoms. You can see what used to be charged particles gaining electrons, becoming atoms at the surface, at the boundary of the heliosphere. 
They're what allow us to see the shape of the heliospheres, these atoms that that undergo what's called charge exchange. They they get an electron from something, and they come streaming into the the atom camera in this hypothetical your eyes. And you're able to see, is our heliosphere, is our astrosphere, is it spherical, is it tadpole-shaped, is it bow-shaped? And you can start for the first time seeing the only known habitable astrosphere in the galaxy. <laughs> Very cool. So, now again, to be, I always have the really, I, I want, and I always want an answer to the really dumb but basic question of like, <laughs> when we say C... It's, I'm guessing that what you mean is that with our own eyes, we're on board the ship and we're just looking out the porthole mm-hmm. through the window, the glass window. We don't see a sphere. Correct. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see anything with your actual eyes. Right. And so we've got a camera that can see these things. And is it that it would, it would see in a collision here, a collision there, it was something that would slowly build up a picture? So that then when it's all, then it sort of adds up to a sphere. I mean, it would take, I, I don't know how long it actually takes to acquire an image. We've flown these kinds of cameras in space before, and we have pictures of the heliosphere from the inside looking out. And it, it looks like a, a pixelated blob of different colors, because the colors represent different energies of atoms. And in fact, there's one part of the sky that has a ribbon across it, that the IBEX mission. So there's a mission right now called the Inter- Interstellar Boundary Explorer satellite, IBEX. And Ibex has one of these atom cameras on board, and it's imaged it just from looking on the inside looking out. We want to take the same type of camera and look at it from the outside in. Wow. It does produce pictures, uh, pretty pictures that you can look at, but it's, it is pictures of the invisible cosmos. Just like, you know, we get pictures, let's say, from a radio telescope, and we can convert, right. convert that into images that we can see. Same idea. What... Does this really mean? It, here's what I find most compelling about this. First of all, looking back on it is really cool. Secondly, we're now in this other river of, you know, particles that came. What is this other? What is this so-called interstellar space? Is it basically the galactic? Are, are all these? Yeah. So the, what, 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 we're in a thing that is, circ- we're now in a current like a Gulf Stream or whatever, but this is a current that goes around the Milky Way, around and around? Yeah, so right now the solar system is passing through what's called the, the Lick, the local interstellar cloud. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's just gas. Some of it's probably mostly hydrogen. From, some of it might be primordial from the Big Bang. Some of it is certainly the wind coming off of other stars. And so it's probably nothing exotic. It's, it's, it's atoms and ions, it's electrons, protons, helium, hydrogen, and the occasional super, supernova remnants of like iron nuclei or something. So it's nothing exotic in and of itself, but it is exotic in that it's, it's literally otherworldly. It's not from our own sun. It's not from our own solar system. And so we want to see what those particles are like. What are the magnetic fields like in the galaxy? How does the galaxy's magnetic field interact with the sun's massive magnetic field? And um, this would then be a long-term precursor to eventually, maybe one day down the road, of actually sending a robotic spacecraft to another star. The interstellar probe would have kind of laid the laid the laid the pavement, you know, <laughs> for for its success for a successor spacecraft. And interstellar probe would be a fifty-year-long mission. 
So a multi-generational mission. And so launching in 2030, I'll be well into my 90s at the end of its uh, at the end of its prime mission, <laughs> but you can't turn around either. You keep, but you can't. T- yeah, uh, you can't come back. So there's precedent. Voyager one and two have been lasted have lasted 42 years in space, launching in 1977. Um, and so this is not completely crazy. It's inspirational and it's far reaching, but it's not crazy. And we can do it with current technology. And the Voyager satellites have uh, golden records on them. They do. Yes, with sounds and images of Earth. As of the 70s. Will this mission carry a record, or is that out of fashion? You know, we haven't talked about that, but we have a workshop coming up this fall, and maybe we'll talk about (laughs) what kind of artifacts you can put on board the spacecraft. The problem is that every gram or kilogram you put on the spacecraft is one less gram or kilogram of either fuel or scientific instrument, or it's one more gram that has slowed you down. A golden record would be pretty heavy. So we'll see what kinds of uh, what kinds of tokens we can. I'm sure there would. I'm sure there will be something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there will be something. And so, although if Stephen Hawking were still around, he'd say, "No, no, please don't, don't put things on, don't tell it, don't tell people we're here." Right, right, because we don't want to get blown up by the aliens that were supposedly out there. This is an actual mission. Mm, it's a mission concept. How how much is between now and what has to happen for this thing to actually happen? And what are the odds of it actually happening? I think the odds are fairly good of something very much like this actually happening. But the next steps that we're actively working a lot on right now is to getting our colleagues, not just in heliophysics, not just in astrophysics, but also in planetary science, to buy into this mission idea. And we do that through a process that the National Academy of Sciences runs called the Decadal Survey Process. Within NASA, the Heliophysics Division, the Astrophysics Division, and the Planetary Science Division all have their own special documents called the Decadal Survey, and those are up for, re, for, for redoing in the early 2020s. And so the idea is to have the information in the Decadal Surveys that Interstellar Probe would help answer, would help satisfy. And so the idea right now is, that the, the fancy word is we're building community consensus that this is the right thing to do. And, and, and if, that, if we play those cards right, you know, hopefully this will become a real mission and no longer a mission concept. And all the missions that do eventually make it to actually to, to be launched, sounds like they have to cut across, as you said, cut across several or as many divisions as possible? Is that the idea? No, actually, this is, some, this is something that Interstellar Probe would be new at. Most missions are stovepiped right in their own division. So the Park Solar Probe is just within NASA's Heliophysics Division. Uh, New Horizons is just within the Planetary Science uh, Division. It's, it's, it's not quite unheard of, but it's, pr- it's, it's almost unheard of to have missions to be this cross-cutting. So that's, that's one innovation, is programmatically it's harder to make the dollars flow across divisions than it is to send a spacecraft out of the solar system. <laughs> that's a perfect end. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. Wow, so last statistic then, how far did we travel from the Earth to yeah. outside the heliosphere? So uh, we just traveled 500 astronomical units away from the sun compared to Voyager 1's paltry 145 astronomical units. So that's five, 500 times 93 million. Yes, that's right. And that is, I'm plugging it at 46 billion 500 million kilometers. Is that okay. right? 
Well, if you did 93 million, that's in miles. Oh, my, that's true. Okay, so, excuse me. Yeah, classic mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mix units. Bad things happen when oh, that... There was a Mars mission that crashed. There have been Mars... Mars has... Yes, yes. Mars has taught us that lesson. So, miles, 46 billion, 500 million miles. We went in one episode of this podcast. <laughs> in one episode. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kirby. And you are going to receive your second finger puppet you are headed for the full 10 for sure <laughs> Excellent. i'll send you toe puppets oh toe puppets i love it we'll see we also have our own decadal survey but it's 10 finger <laughs> <laughs> so you will be receiving a finger puppet of a great scientist or science fiction character who has traveled very far and seen many things from the philosopher unemployed philosophers guild don't go to the philosophers guild the ones who are employed I don't know what they make. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild makes the really funny stuff. Philosophersguild.com. It's just a great site if you've never visited it before. They're just, they're friends of mine. Go check it out. You can, because they're friends of us as well and fans of our show, if you use the coupon code WTIF, you, fellow traveler, can get a 10% discount. Philosophersguild.com. Kirby, uh, where can people find you on the Interstellar Net? The Interstellar Webs. Uh, so my Twitter is at NASAMan58, and my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash NASAMan58. Check it out. Check it out. One of the most beloved guests we have in the What the If community, Kirby Runyon, NASAMan. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Will you now... Now it's just the two of us who are going to have to do oh. the ritual. Yes. The ritual. And you're familiar with it now. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm well-practiced. So where we, uh, for those who aren't familiar, when we ponder the future, when we look out beyond the heliosphere, beyond the what-the-sphere, <laughs> what we see an unknown world, a mystery, and we must scream in horror. What? Ah! Yeah!